Well, good morning, and I am glad to be here. It's been a little while. Uh, those of you that are joining us online, um, thank you for taking the time to do that as well, even though we know you're not able to be with us here. Um, we're still to body together. Well, I'm excited to continue um, to share some more insights from the story of Joseph as we've been doing. It's found in the Old Testament of Genesis. Joseph's story really is very unique um, and has taught us, I think, a lot of things about like trusting God, uh, responding to mistreatment, uh, forgiveness, and redemption. In the past weeks, we've discovered that the story of Joseph is not really all about him. It's really ultimately about God himself. God is the one that continues to work out his plan to redeem his people. That includes us. But here we see the blessing of that through the sons of Jacob. The last couple of weeks, Herb Bloomquist, we had the opportunity, he shared with us kind of this continued God working out his plan. And I also remember Herb kind of lamenting that the Bible really strings out these things. And, and so I get the opportunity to officially let Jacob go as we could say. Um, but you know what? I, in Genesis 40 when I preached, I, I had to let the baker go too. So I'm not sure how I feel about that, but that's the job this morning. Today we have the privilege of seeing God continue to will and to act. We get to see God's plan and his prophecies of old when God makes even a covenant with Abraham um, and, and we see this continued fulfillment of that Today we're using the word blessing quite frequently. Um, it's important to have, I think, at least a, a general definition that we can kind of give us context to that. And so sometimes the promises of God, um, we want to consider them a blessing, but how do we know what that is? And I'm just going to define it this way. It's favor bestowed by God to an individual or group of people. Favor bestowed by God to an individual or or group of people. Oftentimes, I think we use the word blessing like, who's going to bless the meal tonight? Or, um, you know, something down the family. We're so blessed as a family. Um, ultimately, I think we all want to be blessed by God. Um, having a relationship with Jesus is a blessing. I remember about 30 years ago, I wanted the blessing from my wife, my, my wife's parents, to, to date her. <laughs> And I'll tell you, that was a nerve-wracking task to ask because if they said no, what do I do? Honor their request and forget about her? Or find a way around them? Well, thankfully they said yes. I wanted the blessing from them so that I could not only receive the blessing that Tammy would be to me, but I wanted the blessing and good things that would come from her parents and that relationship with them. I wanted the blessing from my dad, from my father, when I was changing schools as I was moving from an accounting degree to a ministry degree. I wanted the blessing again of Tammy's parents to marry her. I truly wanted God's blessing in my life. I think sometimes we um, can think of a blessing as giving permission for something. Um, but I think it's different than that. Permission is more of someone saying yes or no to a question. But I want you to think of a blessing as so much bigger than that. 
You'll hear many Sundays as part of our benediction right at the end of our service will leave you with a blessing from Scripture. For example, Philippians 4, 7, May the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or Numbers 6, 24, where Moses blesses Aaron's descendants. And he says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you and lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Well, following the message today, we plan to leave you really with a special blessing. As I was preparing for this message this week, I was wrestling unusually hard to figure out what exactly the Lord wanted me to share in this in light of what has been shared in the past. I remember Wednesday night, I'm lying in bed and I'm, I'm thinking through the passage and kind of thinking where everybody has been and what they've been teaching and, and the main points. And, and I think the struggle for me was, man, there's a lot of great history and unique things that are taking place in this passage. However, I was reminded that we're in a study of Joseph and into his odyssey into forgiveness. But it's really a story of redemption. This passage also contains the formation, and I think this is so cool, formation of the 12 tribes, the official 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob. And as we read in Genesis 49 today, into the, and then into the latter history of the Israelites, we can remember their origin story. And remember the words that Jacob says to each of his sons as warnings, but also as blessings. Moses in Deuteronomy 33 blesses all the tribes as well, and it's a good place to even learn more about the tribes. But in a vision in New of New Jerusalem, John, as he's there at the end and sees this vision in Re Revelation 21, nearly the very end of our scriptures, it says in verse 12, it had a great high wall with 12 gates. And with 12 angels at the gates, on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There they are to the very end. I've appreciated really the way that Steve and Brent and Jordan and Herb have helped us navigate through this story of Joseph. We have seen that God is the hero of the story. He's the one with the plan, and he's the one that's in control. Joseph is a great example of a man of faith, and he shows that through the decisions he makes in his life. But it is still God's story. Many of you have discovered and remembered many of the promises that are in the Bible, many of the prophecies that are mentioned. You remember these things. But I'm just going to say, no matter your knowledge of the Scriptures and of the Bible, what you need to know is this, and this is what you've been hearing throughout. God has a plan, and his plan is not bound by time. And he's going to work out his plan as he sees fit. So let's just set the stage. Where have we been? Joseph's been reunited with his brothers, and even more importantly, reconciled to them. His father Jacob comes to Egypt and settles there during the severe famine. Jacob is blessed, or Jacob blesses Pharaoh in Genesis 47. So we first see Jacob bless Pharaoh. Jacob then blesses Joseph's sons Manasseh and Ephraim, which we saw Herb explain last week in Genesis 48. 
and he adopts them as his very own sons. And then Jacob gathers all his sons and shares his last words. Or as the Bible heading says, Jacob blesses his sons. So that's where we are today. Jacob's about 147 years old. He's been um, in Egypt probably for right around 17 years. And I'll tell you, I wish I had time to talk about Jacob's life because, boy, it is a story of ups and downs and crazy turns. But that would be a good four-part sermon <laughs> or ser sermon series. But last week, Herb shared this unique blessing that Jacob gave Manasseh and Ephraim where he adopts them as his sons and blesses the younger Ephraim and shares that he will be greater than his brother's offspring. See, jo J Jacob knows his life is nearing its end. So right after the blessing of Joseph's sons, we see these words that end chapter 48, where Jacob says to Joseph, I am about to die, but God will be with you and take you back to the land of your fathers. See, I love the fact that even at the end of his life, he tells Joseph, God will be with you. I think Joseph already knew that to be true in the past, but to hear it from his father must have meant, I think, a lot. It was an encouragement to him because he knew he was about to lose his father. So here in Genesis 49, we pick up the story. It says, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. Well, a few observations. Jacob's sons know he is near the end. We also see that Jacob is very aware of what he's doing. But it's interesting, Jacob uses the words, tell you, him speaking to them, and their response is to listen, and he says that twice. Jacob made it clear that he was, that, he was the one that was going to be doing the talking. And this was not going to be up for discussion or debate. So, the picture, so this picture of the scene, I'm kind of thinking of like a family photo. You know, the boys are surrounded. They're trying to find their spots. And probably you've got Reuben and Joseph that you would assume would be closest because they were the oldest and they were the favorite. You've got the others that are maybe kind of standing in the back like, hey, I don't really want to get in the way. You know, I'm kind of a, the runt of the litter, whatever it may have been. But just this kind of jockeying. But they're around this bed. And we, we know that Jacob is sitting up because at the end of his life, it says he pricks up his feet and lays down in bed. Why he doesn't bless them in birth order, we really don't know. You're going to see that as we walk through each of the brothers and the blessing. Or sometimes, in my mind, it was kind of the warning that he's sending their way. So Jacob begins with Reuben, which makes perfect sense. He's the firstborn um, of Jacob and, the, and son of Leah. His name means behold a son. He was the firstborn. That was a huge thing then. And it says in verse 3, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent, which in a sense means first of highest, in dignity and preeminent in power. And then all of a sudden, that sounds pretty good. I'm thinking Reuben's going, sweet, okay. And then all of a sudden we go to verse 4. Unstable as water, you shall have, you shall not have preeminence. You will not be first. 
because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. Whoa. So we need to know a little bit of history to kind of understand why would the firstborn get this taken away? Well, it's not much of a blessing, I would say. It doesn't feel like it. It seems more like a rant from maybe an old curmudgeon kind of dad. But what's the point? Well, the first part of the blessing is quite positive and speaks about the importance of the firstborn son in a family and, and really how they're the next in line to succession. But just as just the verses before, we see that Jacob blesses the younger. Also, we may remember Isaac receives the blessing over Esau. And we see that David gets the blessing over his, old, his seven older sibling brothers. Reuben, shortly after the death, this is what's going on. Shortly after the death of Jacob's wife, Rachel, she died during childbirth. Reuben went in and slept with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid. Okay, remember, this is the mother of Dan and Naphtali, his brothers. Scripture says Jacob was aware of this atrocity. Scripture doesn't share if Jacob disciplined him or if Reuben even repented, but I think it's safe to say he didn't repent, he didn't take responsibility. When we read verse 4 and Jacob reminds him of this transgression and that there, is a, and there will be a severe consequence, Reuben, you will lose all your rights as the firstborn. And I'm thinking, Reuben, you know, he, here he is, is going, okay, seriously, um, it's in the past, it's a long time ago. Let bygones be bygones, right? Well, the truth is, unresolved sin has consequences. I think this is right, but it also appears that no prophets, no priests, nor did any kings come from the Reubenites. Being unstable as water could simply be kind of a reference to how he was out of control, wouldn't be able to be contained. He did rash things without considering really the consequences. If, if I was to sum up, though, Reuben's life and his issue, it was his pride. He was not willing to humble himself and take care of the sin in his life. And we see how that even played out earlier in the life of Joseph. Well, now we move to the second and third sons of Jacob and Leah and Simeon. He's the second born. His name means heard of my suffering. Levi is the third born son. His name means joined or attached. I'm giving you these names because they mean something. They're not just by chance that they were named these things. Simeon and Levi, though, are blessed together, not separate. And it says this blessing has no positive beginning. It quickly addresses the past sins and how this has affected the family. So in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are brothers, it says. Their swords are weapons of violence. This really is a reference to how they were more of a people that would attack, not be in defense of things. They would be willing to just go out. And we see that here in this passage. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly, Jacob is saying. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. They, they, they get enjoyment out of this. Cursed be their anger, so fierce, and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and dispense them in Israel. So what's this all about? Well, in Genesis 34... We see that Dinah, the daughter of Jacob and Leah, and the sister to Levi and Simeon, is raped by a man from a nearby city. 
Well, Simeon and Levi hear of this, and they're angry. Well, I can imagine. I, I guess I would feel the same way. However, rather than figuring out how to address this and take care of it, they devise a plan to kill, not the man that did it, but all the males in the nearby city. Their plan works. They plunder the city. Once Jacob is made aware of this, he says these words earlier to Simeon and Levi back. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if you, they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. Well, what Jacob lays out here about these two men is how they're angry people at the core. If you're mistreated, their immediate response is to return it with fierce violence and fury and cruelty. Because of their actions, they are forced to move as a family, which now, as part of the blessing, their tribes will be scattered, it says. They lose their place, just as Reuben lost his place. The Simonites end up being allotted a land inside the confines of the tribe of Judah, interesting enough, and eventually become the smallest of all tribes in the end. But it's interesting, we hear a lot more about the Levites. The Levites never received an inheritance of land. They were scattered, as it says, amongst them, but really they were scattered into 48 cities, it says. It seems, though, that the Levites did change their ways. When they stood with Moses, according to Exodus 32, 26, and 29, it says, So he, Moses, stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and daughters, sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. See, God has now set them apart as the priestly tribe. Lots of information about them are in the book of Numbers. It seems that the Levites heeded the warning from Jacob, and Simeon and his descendants did not. Get this, though. Notable people from the Levitical tribe, they would include Moses, Aaron, Miriam, Samuel, Ezekiel, Ezra, and Malachi. That's a quite a list. But I think the lesson here is we can change. God allowed the Levites to understand their wrong and to do what they were supposed to do. Well, probably the most familiar tribe of all that we hear often is the tribe of Judah. Judah's the fourth son of Jacob and Leah. He would have been fourth in line. His name means praise. Consider he was one the one that initiated the sale of Joseph into slavery, it would seem out of place. But what is so exciting, I think, in the story of Judah is his life has been transformed from his truly wicked ways, if you read about a number of those things, to a man that was willing to give his own life on behalf of his youngest half-brother, Benjamin. This blessing from Jacob is quite amazing. And clearly shows God's plan of redemption and how it will come through the tribe of Judah. Not Joseph, as I think many of us would kind of think would make the most sense, right? 
Well, in verse 8, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub. Now hear all this lion talk. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Who do you think that is? He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. It would be hard not to... um, Notice the allusions to to Jesus Christ in this, right? Jesus is also from the tribe of Judah. He's called the Lion of Judah. The scepter is a reference to Jesus' rule over all nations. And what did he ride into Jerusalem on? A donkey of a colt. Simply, we see the head of the family of Jacob's family here will now be Judah. It would be great to take more time here, but... I just at least wanted you to have context of that. Well, the next grouping of blessings really goes pretty quickly uh, because they're not very long. In verse 13, we pick up Zebulun. He's the tenth son of Jacob and the sixth son of Leah. His name means to dwell or a gift, the final son of, you know, he's the final son of Leah. But it's out of order, right? This is, why would he be there? Zebulun will live by the seashore and become a haven for ships. His border will extend toward Sidon. They had a rough start, this tribe, but they really did have a better ending. They were prosperous. They were a harbor city to the rest of the world, but they originally didn't follow God's command to drive out the inhabitants of their land, which is a theme amongst a number of these tribes. But we later see that they're in the thick of helping transfer power from King Saul to King David. They were also very valiant fighters, and we see that in the book of Judges. Verse 14, Issachar is blessed. He's the ninth son of Jacob and the fifth son of Leah. Issachar is a raw bone, which also could probably be translated as strong donkey, lying down among the sheep pens. When he sees how good is his resting place and how pleasant is his land, he will bend his shoulder to the burden and submit to forced labor. Commentators are a bit mixed on what's going on here, but there seems to be some thoughts that Issachar was a strong, was strong, but refused to do some of the hard work that's necessary. They did the same thing, didn't clear the inhabitants when they were supposed to. Probably the most familiar passage about Issachar is found in 1 Chronicles 12.32, where they are uh, with all the other tribes preparing to make David king. And this is said of the men of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So there's some wisdom in there. In verse 16, the tribe of Dan is blessed. Dan is the fifth son of Jacob, but he's the first son of Bilhah. The name means judge. It almost kind of be this idea of like a tribal leader that gives leadership to a group, and, 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 but not so much the judge as we kind of see, you know, behind, you know, with the gavel in the dark robe. A notable descendant is Samson from this tribe. 
It says in verse 16, Dan will provide justice for his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the roadside, a viper along the path that bites the horse's heels so that its rider tumbles backward. It appears that Dan was the tribe that would seek justice. How that's done exactly is not really mentioned, but you see glimmers of it throughout. However, they also had one of the smallest allotments of land. It has a southern border with the Philistines to the south of them. They have a western border of the Mediterranean Sea. And then they have three of the tribes that they border in the north and east. But even though they were small, they were able to defend themselves. It's also important to note that an idol was set up by King Jeroboam after King David's reign. And it was set up in Dan, the land of Dan, as an alternative to worship in the true temple in Jerusalem. So there's some idol issues with Dan. Next, we have Jacob, and he blesses Gad. Gad means good fortune and even troop. Like, I don't know how the two go together, but, you know, um, a good, good troop or something. He's the seventh son of Jacob, and he's the first son of Zilpah. Gad will be attacked by bands of raiders, but he will attack them at their heels. A lot of times that at their heels means they will be small, but they will be effective. In Deuteronomy 33, we read about the tribe of Gad being one of the tribes that were at the forefront as they entered the promised land, and they fought valiantly. Gad, all along with the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joseph's son, and Reuben, they had land to the east of the Jordan River, which meant they regularly were being approached by outside forces from the east. This tribe seemed to always be at war, but they were warriors. This one sounds more like a blessing. Asher, he's the eighth son of Jacob and the second son of Zilpah, and the full brother to Gad. His name means blessed and happy. Asher's food will be rich he will provide delicacies fit for a king. See, Asher's land was in the north, and it was in a very fertile area, uh, which made this tribe really prosperous. Asher, however, didn't completely drive out the Canaanites as they were commanded to do as well, which caused them to not fulfill their responsibility as a tribe. Sometimes they didn't even join the other tribes in battle. However, later they do seem to join in battle and participate as a nation dependent on God and they share their abundance with them. Next is Naphtali. He's the sixth son of Jacob and the second son of Bilhah. His name has the meaning of to struggle or wrestle. Naphtali, this one is interesting, verse 21. Naphtali is a doe set free that bears beautiful fawns. And I'm like, okay, seriously, I have no idea what that means. Um, I know what a doe is, and I know what fawns are. But, um, but some of the renderings, it was interesting, as I went into some of the other passages, it used the words, instead of beautiful fawns, beautiful words. But the consensus from kind of commentators seems to think this meaning that this tribe was kind of nimble and quick, willing to make adjustments, willing to kind of get in and out of places. But they were also able to bring good news, not good news as we would think about it, but more like accurate news back to the tribes. They were a tribe that never fully drove out 
the Canaanites, though, as well. And they found themselves getting bogged down in that and led away from God because of it. They also had kind of a, a bit of a cowardice streak in them at times. But we also see in their history many times of bravery. Barak was a mighty leader warrior from the tribe of Naphtali. All right, can you believe it? We finally made it to Joseph. You know, the, we hear about him in the beginning, but now here we see him. Joseph, as you may remember, he's the 11th son of Jacob. He's the first son of Rachel. His name meant increase. Isn't that interesting how these names seem to connect directly to what they would become? Barb Filiatro, our children's ministry director, has a section in her baby blessings class about selecting names. And one of the exercises is to look at the meanings of the names as you begin to select them. See, names in those days were really, really important. We'll see this and how true this is when we get to Benjamin. Jacob begins his blessing of Joseph in verse 22, and it says this, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over the wall. Now, just to kind of give you a description of what we think this means is the branches are Manasseh and Ephraim, his sons. But the branches, they go over the wall. There's this idea that it's going to be meaning that others are going to be able to be blessed by them. Because anything within the wall was the owner's. Anything that was on the wall and over it would have been free for the taking by anybody. With bitterness, archers attacked him. They shot at him with hostility. Well, Joseph was attacked by his brothers, wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife. But his bow remained steady. His strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob. Now listen to these multiple references to God. The mighty one of Jacob because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. And so we see in here, despite Joseph's mistreatment, he remained faithful to God because of God's sustaining power in his life. And then he continues, because of your father's God who helps you because of, again, another word, almighty, who blesses you with blessings of the skies above. Blessings. You know, we see this blessings of the skies above, blessings of the deep springs below, blessings of the breast and the womb. A reminder to Joseph that the source of his blessings, and this is a good reminder for us, the source of our blessings come from God. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains, than the bounty of the age-old hills. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers. See, the area that Joseph's tribe covered was the largest and most bountiful Basically, he got the double portion that a firstborn would get, a double blessing, Manasseh and Ephraim. It is notable that Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. We also see in Deuteronomy 33, what I mentioned earlier, that Moses has a blessing in there that, again, we can learn many things about the tribes, but many of these same themes show up. Again, we see that because of Joseph's complete obedience and faithfulness to God, he is blessed in very significant ways. If you were to go through that passage and underline or circle blessing, it comes up a lot more than any of the others. 
Well, finally, we're going to look at Benjamin. He's the 12th son, the second of Rachel. Benjamin's mother, Rachel, Jacob's wife, was very old by this point, and she died in childbirth. According to the scriptures, she felt her life was fading and wanted to name the child Ben-Onai, son of my sorrow. Jacob, however, decided that name would bring bad luck, in a sense, and instead named the baby boy Benjamin, son of my right hand. From the beginning, Benjamin seemed fated to a life defined by both success and death. See how these names mean things? Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in verse 27. In the morning he devours the prey. In the evening he divides the plunder. This tribe was a warlike tribe. They had a warlike nature. This would be the tribe that if you were going into battle, you wanted the Benjamites with you. However, they're the same tribe that we learn in Judges 19 through 21 that basically put the tribes in a civil war. And the tribe of Benjamin's almost annihilated. However, in the end, they're restored to and reunited with, reunited with the 11 tribes. But listen to this. These are some of the notable Benjamites. Ehud, the left-handed warrior judge. King Saul, Mordecai, Esther. See, in the past part, or in the last part of verse 28, it says, giving in, see, we see these are blessings, and how do we know? Because it says right here, giving each the blessing appropriate to him. Jacob knew what he was saying. It's good to remember that these were not some random blessings that Jacob just came up with, but they were placed in Jacob's heart and mind from God himself. Well, now the end is truly here for Jacob. And he said what he needed to say. There's no future discussion necessary. And we see in verse 29 and 31, he gives these instructions to his sons. Then he gave them these instructions. I am about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my father, fathers in the caves in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried. And there I buried Leah. Jacob, see, he was thankful for the land he lived in. It was provided to him by Pharaoh and Joseph. But he knew his true home was back from where he was from. I've heard many stories about people saying their last words and then just seeming to fall asleep and pass away because they had said all that they wanted to say, all that they needed to say. And this seems to be true for the case of Jacob. Because in verse 33, it concludes with these words for this chapter. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathing his last, and was gathered to his people. Jacob was at peace, and he had completed his work on earth. Man, what a line for a tombstone. So what can we learn from this passage? Well, here's four things that I think we've been wrestling with through this series, but continue to be themes. God has a plan. Romans 12 tells us he has a good, pleasing, and perfect will, meaning he's got this worked out. He knows where he's going, what he wants to do. 
Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13, not just Jeremiah 11, 13 I want you to pay special attention to. But in verse, we see that he's got a plan. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. In verse 13, the condition of this, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. We also learn from Reuben's life, Levi's life, Simeon's life. Sin has consequences. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Proverbs 28.13, I think, gives us a great picture of this. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Sin is like a flood. It leaves a wake of destruction after it and has lasting consequences. And we need to confess sin immediately. We don't, we don't want it to let it become something that really gets a foothold or that we become indifferent to. Three, the choices we make today will affect those around us and even our future. Proverbs sixteen nineteen: the heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes his steps. So again, we see it's God's way we've got to go. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So our focus has to be on him first and him alone. And all these things then will be added on to you. Or Psalm 103, 17 and 18. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children. So it lasts. It has a lasting effect, for good or bad, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. And finally, number four, we are to look outward. We are to look outward to bring God's blessing. Galatians 5, 22 and 23 talk about the fruit of the Spirit. And in one way that we can bring blessing to people is by living the fruit of the Spirit out in, the li in and around the lives of those that don't know Jesus. And in and around the lives of those in our body of believers. But it says we are to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I know for me, I could use a lot more of all those and then it says against such things there is no law in Psalm 33 we we were pretty familiar with verse 12 but it says before that in verse 11 it says but the plans of the Lord stand firm forever his plans remember God's got a plan he's working it out the purposes of his heart through all generations we see that it continues and continues in the life of Jacob, we see it in the continuation of the 12 tribes. But then in verse 12, it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he chose for his inheritance. See, I believe the greatest of all blessings is to share the good news of Jesus Christ with those that don't know him yet. That is a blessing. We are bringing the greatest blessing to people when we do that. As a, as a person that follows Christ, we've got to remember we are blessed. 
it may not always feel that way. However, just as Joseph probably didn't feel that way for the many years of his life, he remained faithful because he believed that God was worth it. And he knew that God was working out his plan. As Joseph says to his brothers after his father's death, he says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, listen to this, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Genesis 50, 19. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and thank you for the blessings you bestow upon your people. But we also know that in here there are many warnings. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be indifferent to sin, that we under, would understand that it can create a wake of destruction. But Lord, I thank you for the ways in which you bless your people, that you lavish your love on us. You are great and mighty and awesome. Amen. I'm going to leave you with this blessing, maybe familiar to some of you. May his presence go before you and behind you and beside you, all around you and within you. He is. <laughs>